quite amazing, amen. And uh, one of the other amazing things that it did is that we've noticed that I think everybody got sick. <laughs> I mean, we, we kind of just spread that thing around, and uh, what an amazing thing. So, but thankful we're gathered together this morning again, and we have the words of God in our hands, and again, just so thankful. It's been a while, brethren, since we've been in the book of Acts, at least three weeks now, and as you all know, we go verse by verse, we expository verse by verse down through the books that we preach and teach. And so, just by way of remembrance this morning, or by reminder if you haven't been here, the last time we were here gathered together in the book of Acts, we remember that the Apostle Paul had just been stoned. He had just been stoned, and he had just been drugged outside the city by the heels of his feet. I mean, that's what the Jews would do. If any blasphemer, which they considered Paul to be, any blasphemer, they would stone him to death and then drag him by the heels of their feet out to the outer city limits of the city where they were at. However, brother, as we all know, and as we have seen here in the book of Acts, that the Holy Spirit of God was not finished with his preacher. Amen? And so uh, what we see here then, God intervened, the Holy Spirit of God intervened, chasing away, if you will, the hands of death from Paul. Amen? And I wanted to read this again just by way of reminder. Look there at verse 19 of chapter 14. Look at verses 19 and 20 just by way of remembrance. This is kind of brings us up to our text and where we're at in our text. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood around about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And so again, we see this taking place, right? Amen. They stoned him, so they drug him out to the outer cities of Lystra, leaving him there for dead. And many times what would happen, if they weren't dead but through the stoning, they would then be eaten alive by the animals who were outside the city. Amen. That's what they would do. That's how they disposed of men in those days. Well, again, as I said, the Holy Spirit of God, who is orchestrating and guiding and directing all of the actions, amen, that we see in the book of Acts, is he's affirming, again, the church. Like Howard just said, we have in our hands, brethren, the only inspired text concerning the history of the early church. And this is what we're studying, amen, and it is quite amazing to us as we continue to work our way down through the book of Acts. Notice, if you would, there, in verse number 21, again, the leading importance, uh, if you will, Paul's, if you will, Christ-centered preaching. It was always so Christ-centered, amen? And we should be, too, as the people of God, the, the children of God. We should always be preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse number 21 there. They are stoned. They're chased away by the Spirit of God, sent here to the, to the city of Derby. Look at the first thing they do. Look there at verse number 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city... Again, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Amen. This is exactly what they would do. We've seen pattern after time, after time, after time again. They would go into the synagogues, preach to the Jews. What was Paul preaching? The Lord Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. The gospel. This is what they would do. They're in the streets here with all these Gentiles. What is the first thing they do? They preach the gospel. Amen? And that's the power. This is what they've experienced. This is what we've seen them doing over and over and again again. This is the foundation of the church, brethren. This has not changed. Only in certain Western churches, amen, where the gospel can't even be heard anymore. They won't even open their Bibles for the most part. But we see here again a pattern. This is the pattern of the early church, which then we as Christians, amen, are supposed to pattern as well. This is what we do. And of course, we see they preached the gospel. They knew, as we all should know, brethren, of course, that the Spirit of God takes the word of God and sinks it deep down into the hearts of, of the stony men and women that God is reaching and saving, amen? He the Spirit of God takes that word and opens their eyes and softens their hearts so that they might believe on who? The Son of God, the Word of God, working through the Spirit of God that they might believe on the Son of God and be saved. And this is what they knew. This is why the gospel was central. It was always central to what they did first. It's an amazing thing. And we see that there again. Look at verse 7 of chapter 14. Again, this common pattern of the preaching of the gospel. This is what they did. Look at verse 7. And there they preached the gospel. Look at verse number 25 of our text. Again, it's just the continual preaching of the gospel. Look at verse 25 there of our text. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down into Attilia. So again, the gospel is always the leading factor. In fact, we see it again over and over again in Acts. Look at Acts chapter 15. Just a couple of them here this morning, brethren. 
as again, the, the gospel is the focal point of what they preach. Look at Acts chapter 15. Look at verse number 7. Look there what the Bible says. The Bible says, And there had been much disputing. Peter rose up and said unto the men and brethren, You know that at a good time a while ago, God made choice among us, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and what? And believe. So again, that's the central, that's the power of salvation, brethren, again, as we know this, amen? It's unfortunate that men have turned away from the Bible, men who are supposed to be in the pulpit preaching the gospel, preaching that which alone saves. As we always say, don't we, brethren? Brethren, as a pastor this morning, I don't know your heart. I can't see your heart. I can't. But you know who can? The Spirit of God goes into that secret place that only you know, that only he knows. And this is why, again, we rely and we preach the gospel, the power of God's word. I don't know your heart. I can see your actions. But, brother, there are many false converts who have many actions that look like they're saved and they're not. But God knows. The Spirit of God knows. This is why we cling and we hang on to that. Peter says here that by his mouth they would hear the gospel and believe. Look at Paul in Romans chapter 1. Again, just a couple of the emphasis that Paul put here on the gospel and the church at Galatia, which we're going to look at, because this is where they're at. They're preaching in the region of Galatia. This is the first missionary journey that the Spirit of God sent them on. And the, the, the letter to the Galatian churches was written, in, in, if you will, side by side with this. Amen. Reminding them of the gospel. Look at Romans chapter 1. Paul, by the way, incidentally, in the book of Romans, mentions the gospel 13 times. Look at verse number 1. Look what he says there. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. So we have the gospel of God. Look at verse number 9. He calls it the gospel of God. Look at verse number 9 there in, our, in, in Romans chapter 9. The Bible says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. There it is again. The central theme is the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ. Look there, if you would, at verse 15. Of Romans chapter 1. Again, he's mentioning this over and over again. What a glorious portion of scripture. He says, so as much as in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel. Again, this is his theme. He says, to you that are in Rome also. Look at what it says. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the gospel of God, the gospel of his son, the gospel of Christ, that which saves. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. Listen. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Well, where did they get that term faith to faith? That's an Old Testament. He quotes Habakkuk. See, God has not changed, brethren. Men and women and children have always been saved by faith alone. Amen. In every dispensation of time, it all goes back to what? To the finished work of Christ. Brother, listen, if you can be saved apart from the finished work of Christ, then we don't need Christ. Yep. We don't need to gather this morning around the Lord's table like we do every week to remind ourselves that we need Christ. Amen. We remind ourselves of the sacrifice He made on our behalf. Yep. He took our place. You understand the substitutionary death. It's, we understand this very simply, brother. When you were in school, you know, I wasn't homeschooled. Our kids have all been homeschooled. But... If there's a substitute in our homeschool, you know who it is? It's me. That's a scary thought, brother, right? I mean, my wife just does such a beautiful job. But if there's a substitutionary teacher in our homeschool at home, I'm the substitute. Wendy is the normal teacher. I take her place. <coughs> this is Christ. This is what he did. This is what they understand, that you cannot be saved of any... We sang that song, right? Nothing in my hands I bring. Amen. Amen. There's nothing, brethren. It is simply trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, being saved based on the merits of his death, his burial, and his resurrection from the dead. Amen? When one trusts in Christ, his death becomes your death. His burial becomes your burial. His resurrection becomes your resurrection. You're united with him in that, and you are given life through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul and Barnabas clearly understood this, the gospel of Christ. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Again, I want you to see this. As a dispensationalist, and uh, that's a big term that simply means that I believe that God dealt with men differently in different dispensations of time. Although the covenant of Christ and his blood flows through all of them, brother. All of them. Again, Abraham was not saved by something he did. He was not saved by circumcision. Not even close. In fact, the Bible says, and we're going to see that. 
that Abraham believed in Genesis 16, he wasn't circumcised till when? Genesis 17. He was saved based on believing what God said. And brother, nothing's changed. Look here at Galatians chapter 3. I want you to see this very carefully. Again, the gospel woven throughout every dispensation of time. Look at Genesis chapter 3, or Galatians chapter 3. Look at verse number 6 there, if you would. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Look at verse 8. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the what? The gospel unto who? Who is it being preached to? Abraham lived dispensations ago, long, three, four, five dispensations ago since we're in the church age. But yet the gospel is preached to him. How was the gospel preached to Abraham? I'm glad you asked this morning, brother. You're a very inquisitive bunch this morning. Amen? Let's look and see how the gospel was preached to Abraham. Look at Genesis chapter 22. I want you to see this. This never gets old, brother. If the gospel is old to you, your, wire, your, your, your wood's wet. There's something wrong with you. If the gospel is not an exciting, glorious thing that saves dead men and women in their sins. Look here, Genesis chapter 22. Many of us know, don't we, brethren, that Isaac was a type of Christ. What is a type? It's a picture. Isaac was a type, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to see here how the gospel was preached to Abraham here in Genesis chapter 22. A very familiar portion of scripture. But I want you to see here these similarities, this typology that God uses to preach the gospel to Abraham. Look there, if you would, at verse number Two. The Bible says, and he said, Take now thy son, thine only what? Son. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ was God's only son. His only son that what? He loved. Look what he says there, the description. Whom thou lovest. And get thee into the land of Moriah. By the way, the land of Moriah is in the valley of Jerusalem, right where the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. Amen? Right there. So we're seeing a typology. This gospel is being preached to Abraham through his son Isaac. Because every person that's ever been saved is, ba is saved based on what Christ did. Again, I, keep, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but it's very rarely preached anymore. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. We're Americans. Who cares about that? The question is, are you saved this morning? Have you heard the gospel? Have you trusted the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the eternal question that all of us must come and face. Not whether I'm an American or I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. You don't even have any bootstraps. You have no boots without God giving them to you, by the way. Look at what it says there. One of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Look at the second thing there. Look at verse number three. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass. Now, you do realize that Isaac's put on the donkey. Isaac rides this donkey to the place he's going to be sacrificed at. Does that bring any memories? Does that remind anybody of anybody else who got on an ass and rode to the place of sacrifice? Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ got on a donkey and he rode into the city of Jerusalem where he would be crucified. Amen. So again, the gospel is being preached here. This ass. Look at the rest of that verse. There were also two men that went with him to the place of sacrifice. Does that ring a bell, anybody? I mean, we got the Lord Jesus in the middle, and we got two thieves where? On the outside. So it's Jesus in the middle and two thieves on each side of him. There's two men with him as well. Again, this is the gospel being preached to Abraham. Look there, if you would. This typology is such a glorious thing. Look at verse number four. Uh, then on the third day, <laughs> does that ring a bell, brother? When was the Lord Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead? Well, I don't know, on the third day. Amen? Yeah. Now look carefully to the text. Listen to how Abraham speaks. We know from Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham believed in what? In the resurrection. He believed that one could be resurrected. But here, he's, this is being written of him. Look what he says. On the third day, the day the Lord Jesus Christ was resurrected, look at Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw a place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young son, Abide ye here with the ass. And I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come to you again. What is he saying there? He's been asked to kill his only son, to sacrifice his only son. And Abraham says, hey, you just hang out here for a minute. I'm going to take the lad over here, but we're going to come back to you. You know what he's saying? I believe that God can raise the dead. This is exactly what we're seeing. The gospel being preached to Abraham. 
It's an amazing thing, brethren, to see God and his wisdom and how he threads the gospel through every dispensation of time, through all of time, to everyone who will believe. We'll look there, if you would, at verse 6. They both carried their own wood, and Abraham took the wood off the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and knife, and they went both of them together. The Lord Jesus carried his own wood. The Lord Jesus Christ carried his own cross. Again, we're seeing God's glorious gospel being presented to Abraham here, just as Paul wrote in Galatians. God foreseeing that he would save the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel unto Abraham. And this is where it's being preached, right here. Look there at one more thing, and then we'll move on. We can see God's supply, and we see the substitutionary death of Christ here. Look at verse number 8. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb. That's God's provision. That's God providing something to you and I as sinners that we could never apply to ourselves nor supply for ourselves. A perfect, sinless sacrifice. One who then would take our place. As I said, I'm not a very good substitute teacher in my home, but the Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect substitute. He's the one whom God said, I will provide a lamb. He will take your place. He will be the substitutionary death for you, that you might live. Think of that for a moment again as I say, this stuff to me never gets old. It should never get boring. When you think that you as a sinner, one who deserves hell, one who deserves to be sent straight to hell, the Lord Jesus Christ intervened and saved your soul. He took your place, brother. He, oh, that glorious text in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he who knew no sin became sin for us. We can't begin to comprehend that. We in our fallen natures and our flesh cannot begin to comprehend what it means to not sin. But Jesus did, and he became that sacrifice. He paid the debt you and I could never pay. And it's amazing, again, that substitutionary death where he takes your sin and he gives you his righteousness. You, you can't. I mean, brother, you can't begin to get a hold of that or even begin to try and comprehend it apart from the, the word of God. Look at verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. That's the substitutionary death. That's the taking of place. This, brethren, is where, as the gospel is, again, threaded through the book of Acts, threaded through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, on it goes. All the way into the book of Revelation where we see the angel, the eternal the angel preaching the eternal gospel to those who are during the great tribulation. Think of that, brother, in the grace of God. Even in great tribulation, the angel is still preaching the eternal gospel of God. What an amazing, glorious thing to behold. Here, this is their theme. This is what they did. This is what they understood. They would go into this city, that city. And the last thing they would do is pull out their Joel Osteen book and say, this is your best life now. Because if this is your best life now, you're in big trouble. Yeah. I don't know about you, but Job told me twice that life is full of trouble. Man is born of trouble. Yeah. And the sparks fly upward. I don't want this to be my best life now. I'm dying. I'm getting old. I mean, I always say that, right? Oh, you youngsters. You look in the mirror and you go, wow, look how smooth my skin is. Look how youthful and young I look. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, you're going to end up looking like me. That's a scary thought. Yeah. Your hair is going to change colors. Yeah. Yep. You're going to have a few wrinkles. That stuff that was in one spot moves to another. <laughs> and it's a continual reminder that we are dying in our flesh. Yeah. And this life is not our best life now. If you're a Christian this morning, your best life now comes when Christ either brings you home or he comes to get you. Yep. Amen. 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 That's our best life now. And it's all because of the gospel. Amen. All because of what he's done. Not what you've done or I've done or anyone else. The power and tentacles of the gospel reach into every dispensation of time, brethren, to save every believing one. Every. We use that term, whosoever. Whosoever believes shall be saved. Whosoever in every dispensation of time shall 
and will be saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Now look what Paul does. Paul fulfills, again, the continuing of the great commission that Jesus gave unto us here in our text. Amen? The first thing you do, listen, the first thing you do is you preach the gospel, and if the Lord opens their heart to believe, the work begins. You understand this. Because the making of disciples is where the work is at, and that's one of the things that the church, quite frankly, has forgotten and moved away from. It's a stunning thing. It really is. Look there at our text. Look back there at Acts chapter 14. I want you to see this. As he fulfills that which Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18. Go, go ye therefore, and what? Teach, make disciples of all nations. Teaching them and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Paul is simply doing in our text what Jesus commanded him to do and what Jesus commands you and I to do. We are to preach the gospel. And brethren, if the Lord sees fit to save one, then we, as preachers of the gospel, have an obligation by God himself to minister unto that person, not to leave them alone, not to leave them as sheep out there for the wolves to come, which we're going to look at, but indeed to minister unto them, to disciple them. Look at verse 21 of Acts chapter 14. Look there if you would again. We're going to spend a little bit of time here this morning in verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, look at, and had what? Taught many. They had taught many. Now, brethren, again, this is the work. This is where the tire gets down on the ground. The gospel is preached. You have nothing to do with saving anyone, and neither do I. The gospel does that. But then we do have a responsibility, brother, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, to teach one another. Now, that word taught is interesting here, brother, and you understand this. That word taught means to instruct one to become a pupil. Yeah. It is one, it is to make a disciple. Listen, it, it is to make one a scholar of Christ. Amen. You know that's what that word means. Every Bible-believing Christian should be a scholar of Christ. A scholar. Listen, you got what? Like me, I, I barely passed general math. And then you have guys that are in calculus and all this other stuff that I can't comprehend in my mind because God didn't design my mind that way. But for one to become a scholar of Christ, it is a glorious thing by God where he uses the preacher that or the person that he uses to bring you to Christ. One becomes a scholar by studying the scriptures. One becomes a scholar by listening to the preacher and listening to fellow brothers who have been in the Lord for a while. It's quite an amazing thing. It really is. In fact, it's a lifetime of ongoing biblical instruction that never ends. That's why for me, you read things, and again, I've said this a million times, brother, you'll have to excuse me, but I, I read things in Scripture. Now, there's much of it I don't understand, but I believe it. Because it's in God's word. I don't understand some of the things that God does. I'm finite. He is infinite. He is beyond knowing. But yet, he's given us the holy scriptures here. To read the scriptures, to study the scriptures, to be instructed. And by the way, this biblical instruction is by way of a shepherd's loving care and follow-up. This is so important, brethren. Look what happens here in our text. I want you to notice the cities that they go back to. The shepherds who just preached the gospel are now going back to those same cities. And you ask yourself, what's the big deal? So if I led somebody to the Lord in Bismarck, I'd just go back to Bismarck. Not under these circumstances you wouldn't, unless the Spirit of God puts this loving care for the sheep deep down in your heart. Look there if you would. Why is that such a big deal to us as they return to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Again, very inquisitive. I'm glad you asked. Look at chapter 13. Look at verse number 50. You remember what happened to them in Antioch. And Look at verse number 50 there, Acts chapter 13. Verse, what happened in Antioch? What's so amazing that they would go back to Antioch? Verse 50, but the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and what? And expelled them out of their coast. <laughs> they were kicked out. The Jewish people expelled them out of, out of their coast. Here's Paul going, as a shepherd of God, someone who loves the sheepfold of God. I don't care. I'm going back because this is something that's in the heart of a shepherd of God. It doesn't matter what took place. Remember back a long, 
Well, let's see, even older than me, back when Calvin lived and back when some of these men lived, there was a plague that went through. And I mean, it was killing everybody. And you know what the pastors of that day did? They took turns. They said, I'll go to that home. I'll take the Lord's Supper to that person this week. And some of the pastors were dying as it was happening, and yet the shepherd's heart within them could not be stopped. When one is a shepherd, when God raises one to a shepherd, an under-shepherd, let me say, an under-shepherd of the great shepherd, but there's a love that he puts in your heart for the people whom you shepherd. This is what we see in Paul. It never left him, even to his dying day. He loved the churches, the people of God. And he would go at any expense to go back and to see. Look at chapter 14, verse number 1. Again, these, these cities that, that they left, they're going back to. Verse 14, verse 1. And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews and so spake. And a great multitude, both the Jews and Greeks, believed. The Jews were having none of that. They were not going to let their people trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But look at here. Look at verse number 5. After they preached the gospel, the Jews believed. Look at verse number 5. And when there was an assault made, <laughs> Paul and Barnabas were assaulted. Can you imagine? Brother Keith isn't here. This, well, look, this sickness we all got, it's an amazing thing. Everybody's just kind of took off. They're gone somewhere. But amen, I pray you're well. But listen, assaulted. Not only were they assaulted here for the preaching of the gospel in the city, going back to it. Look what it says. And then there was an assault made both, both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully to what? To stone them. So they were in Iconium, they were assaulted, and then they were threatened with stoning. Paul says, there's sheep there. I'm the shepherd of that sheep. I'm going back to preach to them to make sure that they're okay. And finally, we know the city that he just left to go to Derby. he was actually stoned in. <laughs> but he says, I'm going back. It doesn't matter. And brother, that only happens, again, as I said it before, when God puts in the heart of a pastor a love for his sheep, and his people, this is what we are supposed to do. Not just preach to you. I, I like to preach. I like to preach to you, but I also like to be preached to. That's why we have other elders once a month preach. Because I like and I need to be preached to. I need to have the word of God work effectually in my heart as well as I sit and listen. Amen? This is Paul's heart. This is his desire was to watch over those brethren. Now, brethren, again, as I can, <clears throat> I'm not going to deviate, but I want you to turn with me to John chapter 10. I want you to see how the Bible describes a good shepherd of God. Look at John chapter 10. And as we turn there, I want you to keep in mind that in chapter 9, right before this chapter, you remember that those who claim to be the shepherds of Israel... Those who claim to love the shepherd, the, the, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, they were the ones you remember that were evil and cruel to the man and his parents, the man who was born blind. You remember that. They were not the shepherds, nor did they care for those people whatsoever. And I want you to see how Jesus describes a shepherd who cares not for the flock. Not for one second. And again, this is the thing you have to be careful of. When you're looking for a church, when you're desiring maybe God is moving you from a place that they don't preach the truth and there's an unction from God to move into another place where the preaching of the word is, how the shepherd handles the word of God, what he thinks of God, how he preaches the word of God, his essentialness, if you will, as Job, I need the word of God more than my necessary food. How does the elder, the shepherd, view God's word? This is what you must look at. Look at here how Jesus describes for you and I a shepherd who does not care for your soul. And again, this is so important for us to consider. Look at the terms that Jesus used. Of course, he's describing himself here as the great shepherd, the door in which one comes through. But look how he starts verse number one. He says, verily, verily. That means truly, truly. Everything Jesus said was true. Amen. I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door unto the, into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a what? A thief and a robber. The, first, the very first thing he says, these other shepherds are thieves and robbers. Not only once. But look there, brother, and look at verse number 8. He says it again. Look what he says. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Look at verse number 10. 
he says it again. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, that they might have it to have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd, he says in verse number 11. So what he's distinguishing is the difference between a good shepherd and one who is a thief and a robber. One that does not care about the sheep. In fact, a thief is somebody who does what? A thief is just somebody who steals something. A robber is one who does what? He pulls his pistol out and takes it by force. So he says, they're thieves. They're nothing but thieves and robbers. They are not shepherds. If chapter 9, if those religious leaders, the Jews, cared one whit about the people, they would have never acted the way that they acted towards this blind man. They would have had compassion. They would have loved the family. They would have taken care of them. But instead, they treated him like dogs and said, you go out. We'll have nothing to do with you. In fact, I don't want to go there, but if you look in chapter 9, I'm very tempted to go there. Let's just go there. Look at verse 11. I want you to see the glorious work of Christ. I want you to see the progression that takes place. Look at verse 11 of chapter 9. He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus hath made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Shalom and wash. And I went and washed and received sight. When he first sees Christ, he, he views him as a man. This man came to me and told me to do this. Watch the progression. Look there, if you would, brethren, at uh, verse number uh, 17. Look at verse number 17. The Bible says, They said unto him, they say unto the blind man again, What sayest thou of him that he hath opened thine eyes? He said he is a prophet. So this man's understanding of Christ went from a man, now he's a prophet. Look what happens the third time. It's an amazing, glorious thing of the progression of this man's faith as he trusted in Christ and what Christ was doing. Look there again in verse number 38. Well, verse 36. He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and he is that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. When Christ first healed him, he thought he was a man. Then he's thinking about this Christ that only God could do. He's a prophet. No, he's more than a prophet. He is a man. He is a prophet. But he is the Lord Jesus Christ. He trusted in him. We see this progression. And I'll tell you what, brother. That's why Jesus had to address the shepherds. Because they hated every minute of it. They weren't going to have any of them believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It's amazing, isn't it? Religiosity will kill you. Brethren, if you're anywhere near a religious church, or a religious, and I mean in, a, in an unholy sense, you run as fast as you can. Religiosity will kill you. It will keep you from the truth. It will keep you from Christ. You mustn't entertain that thought whatsoever. Thief and robber, look what he calls them there in verse 5, and then I know we got we got to move on, but I want you to see this. In the verse 5 he says, And a stranger will they not follow but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of the strangers. You know what a stranger is? A stranger is one not of one's own accord. A stranger literally is a hostile alien interested only in the sheep for their own personal gain. You realize that, and again, I'm not trying to be negative. I'm trying to be positive. You realize this is why most churches will not touch any of the subjects that we've touched in the last three months. It won't happen. Pastors won't talk about it. They don't want to talk about cross-dressers. They don't want to talk about people killing their children. They don't want to talk about that. They don't want to talk about transgenders. They don't want to talk about how God has set things right and that we must be obedient to Christ. Because you know why? Because they're simply strangers worried about their money. Yep. And you know what he said else? Look what else he calls them. He calls them what? He calls them strangers here. You're, you're hostile aliens. I don't know who you are. You're not a shepherd of God. Look what else he calls them a hireling. Look there, and then we'll finish this up. Look at verses 12 and 13. Isn't it amazing? Verse number 12. But he that is a hireling and not a shepherd. You know what a hireling is? A hireling is someone, again, who's worried about their paycheck. Worried about saying the right things to the people sitting here so they don't withhold their money. Well, one thing's for sure, brother. One thing you know about me. That's never been a problem, and it never will be. And I always tell the other elders, if it is, it becomes a problem. You get the shepherd crook and you yank me out of here before I cause some damage to somebody. Not for filthy lucre, brother. No way. You think God can't give you a couple bucks? <laughs> well, what do you think? 
God who holds a thousand cattle on the hill, you think, and he owns uh, everything. He can't give you a couple bucks to get by and buy some powdered milk if you need to. <laughs> Preach the word, brother. Be faithful to the word of God. Preach the gospel and let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. That's how it has to be. That's how Paul and Barnabas did it. They simply were faithful to the word of God. Let the chips fall where they may. And this is precisely what we see. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ the good shepherd tells us, here's a good shepherd, here's a bad one. God instructed Israel all through the Old Testament, we know this. But look at just one more, Paul's love and his desire. Look at Acts chapter 15. Look at this thing that never leaves him, his concern for the church. Look at Acts 15, look at verse 35 and 36. Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren. <laughs> There's that love, the shepherd's love for the people who he's teaching. Let us go and visit the brethren, he says, in, in, in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. Now, brethren, let me just sidetrack for a second. This is why when the church gets too big, when there's too many people sitting in the pew, it's time to make another church. It's time to take some elders and some men and split the church. You know why? Churches that are huge, you don't know the pastor. And he doesn't know you. At all. I just had a conversation last week with a, late, a couple ladies and a man that visited our church. They said, it's so weird that the pastor will talk to us. I'm going, what? Why is that weird? That's normal. No. In big churches, that's not normal. And you know what? The shepherd, who is the under-shepherd of Christ cannot care for the sheep if we don't know who you are. We have to know who you are. So therefore, if it ever happens, and I've been here I think about nine or ten years, we've gotten close and then Satan sends, sends a little dart into the church, causes all kinds of trouble. We would split off and start another church so that the elders, the shepherds whom God puts in place, knows who you are. And you know them. It's very important, brother. That's part of shepherding. We can't do it if there's too many and you can't get together. Now look there again at verse number 22 of Acts chapter 14. Look at here. The shepherd's love and care for the apple of God's people. It never left Paul. Look what Paul says though. So we've preached. We're checking up on them. And look what he does in verse number 22. Really three things in this verse. First of all, verse 22. Look at that word. Confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. No, in the faith, that's very important, singular. And that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Now, brethren, Paul knows all too well. See, again, Western Christians do not understand what Paul just said. Because when you turned away, brethren, from those other faiths, it could be pagan, it was probably Jewish, some Jewish faith. When you turned away from them, which these people did, they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, contrary to what the Jews wanted, contrary to the pagans that were running all over the place. When you turned away from that, you were basically ostracized. They don't know who you are. Your family was gone. They did away with you. Paul knew this. This is why Paul says, I'm going to go back and I'm going to confirm the brothers. I'm going to exhort the brothers, right? It's kind of like when Jesus was saying, unto the brothers. You know, when you came to prison and visited me, you brought me water. Thank you. Pretty soon in our minds we think, oh, we got to start a prison ministry. No. <laughs> Brother, that's not at all what that means. It's okay to have a prison ministry. But what Jesus was saying is that when you bring this to me, you are aligning yourself with me. Yep. And you know what's going to happen? The same thing that happened to me is going to happen to you. There was none, oh, we're going to start a prison ministry. No, actually, you were associating yourself with that believer, and when you associated yourself with that believer, you became the target next. And it's the same thing here. The Lord, or Paul, being used by the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, I must go and confirm the brethren. That word confirming literally means to place firmly upon, to prop up, to uphold. And we notice what? What is he first confirming? Their souls. Look at the text closely. Their souls. You know what the soul is? That's the, the inner man in proximity to the physical body. Paul's worried about their souls. He's worried about their eternal souls, that which lives forever, brethren. 
The body's going to die and go to the grave. Your soul that lives in you will either go to heaven or to hell. Either one, depending on if you've trusted in Christ or not. But he's confirming their souls, literally propping them up, knowing full well that their families have deserted them. All their friends have deserted them because they've turned to Christ. And he says, I want to just go and confirm the brethren. Not only does he want to confirm them, but also he wants to what? Exhort them. Now, that word exhort is interesting because he addresses the inner man first by confirming them. Then he's going to exhort the outer man. And that word exhort literally means this. To call one alongside. To enlist one to laudable practices. Laudable deeds. And what is that deed? To continue in the faith. So we have the inner man being addressed. Paul's concern. And then we have the outer man. Hey, I'm going to exhort you. I'm going to laud you to good deeds. Which is what? Following and keeping the faith. Brethren, this is so important. We live in such a time. In such a pluralistic society. It's stunning to believe. When we're out street preaching, it's amazing, isn't it, brother, what you hear? See, one God is just as good as another. Go stand and preach. Open your Bible. Like I do is read the Bible in the street, and you're going to hear it. Right, Brother Harrison? Right, brothers? That's what you hear. What makes your God better than my God? All gods are the same. Oh, brothers, this has been perpetrated and pushed from the very beginning. In fact, Daniel Webster, who we all know, right? You know who Daniel Webster was? Yeah, he was one of our, you know, great men in history. His brother was Noah Webster, you know, the dictionary guy. His concern, he said this in our documents, you realize that in our, in our founding documents, in our, in our Constitution, in the Declaration of Independence, you know who's not mentioned one time? The Lord Jesus Christ, not once. You hear Almighty, the Almighty, God, this kind of thing. You know what Daniel Webster said? He said, my brothers, I am very concerned that the Lord Jesus Christ has not been segregated out as God. Because what's going to happen is, if his name is not preached, if he is not preached as God in the flesh, the Savior of all mankind, we are going to become one of the most pluralistic societies in all of time. Oh yeah, we are one of the most pluralistic societies in all of time. One God is as good as another. It's a stunning thing. Not here, brother. Not with Paul. Not with what Paul is doing. He's exhorting them. He's confirming the brethren. In fact, he's simply doing what Jude had to do. Look there quickly with me, if you would. Look at Jude, the book of Jude, real quickly. It's the same thing. Jude being led by the Spirit of God to write these glorious words down. And he was interrupted by the Spirit of God. You realize this. He was intending on doing one thing. The Spirit of God interrupted him. And look what he says here, if you would, in verse number 3. Jude, I always want to say chapter 1. Jude 3, there's only one chapter. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation. See, there's one common salvation in Christ alone. There's no other gods. There's nothing else. It's him. It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you to call you alongside. To call you to what? To elicit these good deeds. To what? To contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. The faith. It's the same faith in Acts. The same faith today. It's the same faith that saves one. It's the same faith ever and ever and ever. It's the same faith. Paul, or simply Jude, is interrupted by the Spirit of God saying, Hey, <clears throat> I wanted to say this, but i got to stop for a minute and tell you this. I need you to contend for the faith. Again, Paul and Barnabas, being godly shepherds, went back to confirm and exhort God's sheepfold, knowing full well that it is, brethren, no small thing. It is no small thing, those who are true believers, to walk with the Lord year after year, trial after trial, tribulation after tribulation. He knows that we need one another, brethren. We are sheep. We're not bears, as Spurgeon said. We're not bears out on our own. We are sheep, and we need one another. We gather together because we're sheep. That's what the Bible calls us metaphorically, and that's absolutely true. It is no small thing. It takes a confirmed soul and an exhorted faith. As he told them, we must go through much tribulation to enter into the... It doesn't say maybe. It doesn't say you might. 
It doesn't say possibly. It says you will suffer persecution. This is what we're seeing. This is what Paul is encouraging the brethren. If you're living godly, if you're living Christ-like, there's going to be some persecution coming your way. And brethren, believe you me, if it's not, you may want to ask yourself, why not? Look at here as we try and bring this thing to a close. Look back at Acts chapter 14. There's a lot here in these first verses. Look at Acts chapter 14. Look at verse 23. Look there, if you will. I'll try and condense these things a little bit together here. Look at verse number 23. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord and whom they believed. What a glorious statement that Luke, under the inspiration of God, tells us here. It's an amazing thing. With Paul and Barnabas being called back, because this is the extent of their missionary journey, they made it here to Perga. That's as far as they go. Now the Spirit of God is going to call them back. That's why they went back. They're going heading back through the cities. They're heading back to the sponsoring church. Look there, if you would, at verse number 26. Look what it says as we cruise along here. Look at verse 26. And then sail to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God and for the work which they fulfilled. So they're heading back to the, to the church that sent them. The church at Antioch sent them out. So they're just going to do the work of God. Now they're going to head back, and they're going to give a glorious report, as we're going to see. Now again, these new sheep, these babes in Christ, needed the God-ordained protection from the ravening wolves who are prowling and who are still prowling today. This is why he did what God ordained in every church. He is, what does it say there? He, what? They ordained elders in every church. They're babes in Christ. They don't know that much. And so they need someone who's been in the Lord a while, someone who's been a faithful man to watch over their souls. Ultimately, brethren, this is what you see. He's protecting them. Because, again, there's ravening wolves coming in and out there, dragging the sheep off right and left. And Paul says, as God ordained it, I'm going to put, we need to put elders in every church, men who will care for our souls, men who will watch over our well-being, and there's no doubt about it. So they prayed and fasted, and he commended them unto the Lord, who is the great shepherd of their soul. Let's just look at a couple of them again. The care of the shepherd. Look at Acts chapter 20 as we bring this to a close. The care of the shepherd, being worried about the wolves who come, and try and steal the sheep. This again was a desire that never left Paul. He was always concerned about the churches. Always concerned about the brothers. Look there if you would at verse 26. He says wherefore. He's getting ready to leave. And he's got all the elders together. And he called them together. The elders at Ephesus. And he says this in 26. Wherefore I take you record this day. That I am pure from the blood of all men. I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. He preached everything about God. Not just love. He, pre he preached judgment. He preached all of these things. All the perfect characteristics of God that go hand in hand. One works with the other perfectly. It's an amazing thing. He says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over which the Holy Ghost hath made you what? Overseers, shepherds, to feed the flock of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. And I know this. That after my departure shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Look at their description. It's when a wolf comes in from the outside, you see it. You can see them ravaging and what they're doing. You see them when they come in. But look what he says. Not only do we watch from without, we must watch from within. Look what he says. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So they're going to look like us. They're going to smell like us. Well, you don't want to smell like I do. Well, you, they're going to look like us. They're going to act like us, but they're not us. They have one thing in mind. They are the shepherds Jesus talked about. They're the wolves that don't care about the flock. Look what he says. Look at the care that Paul then tells the shepherds to give unto the sheep. Therefore, look at here, brethren. It's a watchful care. Therefore, watch, he said, and remember by the space of three years. That's a long time to watch. It's a very watchful care that the shepherd of God must do over the sheep. It's a very very careful, watchful care. Look at the earnest care. Look what he says there. Not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul was earnest in his love for those who, were, who he preached to. We should be too. It was a very, if you will, earnest care. Look at the next one. It's an anchored care. Look at here, brother. And this is what I commend to you today. 
And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. That's a very loving care that a shepherd would ultimately commend them to God, commend them to his word. And that's what a shepherd should always do. Commend the sheep to God and to his word. Look at one more, Hebrews 13 again, and then we'll move on. The Bible is very thorough. I'm not that thorough this morning, but the Bible certainly is. Let me just show you again here that love, Hebrews chapter 13. Look at verse number 17. And again, brethren, this is something that the churches know nothing about. We've become so transient. We've become so, uh, and I don't want to be negative, but I'm trying to be positive. We've become so disconnected from everything that we won't even follow this simple text. Men, we're so transient, so unconnected from things. Look at verse 17. Obey them which have rule over you. <laughs> I can't tell you the number of times that I've tried to counsel the sheep, say, here's what God's word says, don't do that. But what do they do? They do it anyway. It's a stunning thing. And then you see the results of it. It's not that I'm smart. It's that God is smart. It's that God put it in the Bible. I just simply follow biblical principles. Hey, you shouldn't do that. I would not recommend you do that. And, and it, every situation, it always ends up bad. You know why? Because God said, whatever you sow, you're going to reap. It's very, that principle doesn't change. Obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves. There's another word they don't like, people don't like. For they watch over your souls. As they, they must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for it is unprofitable for you. Brethren, when the shepherd whom God is, the under-shepherd whom God has put over you, when they come, or when you ask them for biblical counsel and advice, it's good to listen to them, because you know what? It puts them what? Grief. You have no, you have no idea how wore out I am from seeing things happen. 25 years of preaching. I'm getting wore out. Well, I'm getting aged too, but you get wore out from seeing people, your own children sometimes. They come to you and say, here's what God said, don't do that. And they do it anyway. It's stunning. And it wears you out, brother. You deal with your own issues. You deal with everybody else's issues. That's why there's always a plurality of elders. I can lean on Howard. I lean on Dean. Most of my preaching has not been that way. It's been me, and, not, and I'm not saying me in a, in, in a weird way. It's an unbiblical way. God never designed the church to have one pastor. It just, it just isn't designed that way because one pastor can't do it. He can't take care of everybody. Again, this is how the scripture lays it out. Look at verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, uh, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Again, the under-shepherd points you to the great shepherd that he might transform you and make you more and more into the image of Christ. And we do that not to lord it over you, as Peter said, not for filthy lucre, brother, because we love you, because we desire to see, as Paul saw, that the sheep would be commended to God and that they would be transformed into the image of Christ. That's why we do it. And as a shepherd, as an elder, if you're looking for power, if you're looking for those kind of things, keep walking. Because this is anything but power. People think, you got to obey him, we got to submit to him. He's just a power-hungry Hitler, which I've been accused of being. Putting the church back in the proper order. I was accused of being a Hitler. No, actually, I'm just trying to follow Scripture and then simply have those come on board that Lord, the Lord has sent to help us in that. You can't carry the load. You were never designed for that. And neither was I. But look here as we close. Look at Acts chapter 14, verses 27 and 28. And we'll close with this. Everybody, oh, one more verse, one more verse. I have a bad habit of doing that, amen? Look at verses 27 and 28, and we'll, we'll close. They're headed back. Look what they do. And when they were come and had gathered the church together... They rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And there they abode a long time with the disciples. What a glorious thing. After arriving back in Antioch, as the Spirit had led them, 
They, they, they gathered their sponsoring church to give an account for what God had done through them. Look at that. God opened the door to the Gentiles. God used us in this fashion. All the glory was given to God. Amen. All that God did through them. But they are giving an account to a local church. Do you understand this, brethren? Again, this teaching about the local church. Again, I'm sorry, but I, I, I guess I, I, I go off on tangents once in a while. But again, this is one of the sad realities in the Western churches. Is that they close their, their first missionary journey with a glorious report. Brethren. They closed it to a church that they were accountable to. Paul, the apostle, he who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament Bible that we have, was accountable to a local church. Do you understand the depth of that? One, as a believer, should be accountable and be a member of a good, Bible-believing church. One, that you can be held accountable in and one that I can be held accountable in. The same rules apply to the pastor. That's the beauty of it, isn't it, brethren? The same principles that apply to you apply to me. I'm not above it. I am accountable to you. Just as you should be in a good, sound, Bible-believing church accountable to the elders. That's a second and third century thing. Where to live a godly life in front of them. And you have to speak. See, this lifestyle evangelism doesn't work because Mormons live good lives. You got to be speaking the gospel. <laughs> it's a different Jesus. You understand that we're not all the same. It was funny, and then I got to stop. I know. But last year, or maybe it's two years ago now. Time flies. You remember when uh, Mitt Romney was running, and everyone, oh, we're all the same, and well, Glenn Beck's going around preaching in all these churches. No, we're all the same. And finally, the president of the Mormon Church had to stand up and say, we're not all the same. We don't have the same Christ. No, we don't. We do not. The Christ of the Bible is the Savior, not Satan's brother. Not saying that black people are condemned. <laughs> you know, they had to change their doctrine because that's what they taught. Study. In fact, the last Mormons that came to my door, I used that, said that to them. See, the Bible never changes. Your doctrine does. Well, what do you mean? Well, you change your doctrine because you used to say that black people are cursed. Ooh, they ran faster than they could run. Because they know it's not true. It's not the same Christ. It is another Christ, another spirit, another gospel, but not this one. Not the one here. And again, let us consider, brethren, as we are gathered together. Most people are not saved in huge crowds. They are not. So, again, normally it's one by one. So you ask yourselves this morning, what difference does it make if we hand out a gospel tract to somebody? What difference does it make if I am in the restaurant and I leave a gospel tract or I speak to someone there one-on-one, -on -one, which we do on a regular basis? Every Christian should. What difference does it make to that one person? Well, you've heard the old story about the man on the, on the, on the seashore in the sand and all thousands of starfish had been washed up onto the sea and he's walking along the sea, the sand, and he's Tossing one in, he picks, tosses another one in, tosses another one in, tosses another one in. And a little boy is watching him, and he comes up and he says, Sir, what are you doing? And he says, Well, I'm, I'm throwing these, these starfish back into the sea. And he said, Well, what difference does it make? There's thousands. What difference does it make? And the man reached down, and he threw another one in, and he says, It made a difference to that one. It meant life to that one. And he threw another one in, it made life, it means life to that one. Brother, what difference does it make? People are one to Christ, one by one most of the time. And it makes a difference because it means life to them. Amen? So our focal and our, our really the principles that we should live by are the principles of Scripture. Because, brethren, it does make a difference. One by one by one. Let's pray. Father, this morning we have been blessed to hear your word, the teaching of your word. Two-thirds of the world woke up this morning not having your Bible. We are so blessed beyond measure. Most of us probably have 20 or 30 Bibles in our study. 
People long for the word. We're so blessed this morning to hear it. And Father, we thank you that you have preserved it down through the ages of time. That is as powerful today as the author of Hebrews wrote. The sword of the Spirit is powerful, sharper than a double-edged sword. And Father, we thank you again. The power contained in it is stunning to us. Father, may we be, if you will, high churchmen. Well, let me say it, and high church ladies. And high church children. People who are tethered to the local church and believe in your polity and how you have set it up. That you would be so gracious unto us to give us elders and deacons. That you would be so gracious unto us to give us some sheep here for us to love and to oversee. Father, we are blessed beyond measure. Father, I pray for the believers that are here this morning that this sermon and the hearing of your word, actually, not my sermon, but the hearing of your word was edifying to them. We pray that you will, as the Spirit of God wills, take it deep down into our ears, that it might change us, it might transform us, it might soften our hearts towards the law. It might soften our hearts towards our brother. Whatever needs to be done. Again, that secret place that only the Spirit of God knows. The heart of men and women. You know what the, each of us needs. And Father, this morning too, as we close in prayer, we pray for the lost. The lost sheep. Those who are yet to come and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To trust in Him and His finished work. Father, we pray that maybe today is the day that the word will be sent deep down into their stony hearts by the Spirit of God. And a heart of flesh will be replaced, that they might believe, that they might come to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and be saved. And Father, now as we gather around the Lord's table, again, we are reminded of the great price that was paid, a debt we could never pay. We thank you now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.